Welcome everyone to Ask the Horse Live, our monthly live event where our experts answer your horse health and industry questions. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the Horse and the Horse.com. Tonight's topic is the Equine Athlete Bal Balanced Hooves and Healthy Joints, and it's sponsored by Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica. Our Experts tonight are Dr. Scott Morrison of Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, and Dr. Britt Conklin, who's an equine professional services veterinarian with uh, Behringer. Tonight's event um, is about to get started, so let's start with you, Dr. Morrison. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with horses to help keep their feet and their joints healthy? Yeah, um, I went to farrier school in 1990 and trained as a farrier and then went on to veterinary school in about 1990, um, I'm sorry, 94. And then, uh, you know, always combined farriery and veterinary medicine up to the point where I completely do 100% podiatry now. And I've always looked at, you know, treating horses from kind of a ground-up approach. I always, I always look at the foot first and I always assess foot balance and the function of the foot uh, before I even go on to any other part of the lameness exam or, or evaluation of the horse. So uh, it's kind of always been my approach is to look at the foot first and then and then the rest of the horse. Okay. And Dr. Conklin, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with horses and managing their feet? Sure. My background's uh, not a lot different than Scott's. Dr. Morrison's there. Uh, I was a farrier before I was a veterinarian. I uh, went to veterinary school and uh, uh, very similarly combined the two. Uh, I've been a farrier for about 18 years and a veterinarian for about 14. So um, much like him, uh, found a, an avenue and a, a niche to fill. Uh, mine was primar primarily the Western Performance Horse, Western Sport Horse. Um, and uh, I've been doing that for some time, and I also work for, for bearing her as a, as a technical veterinarian for them as well. Okay. So our Ask the Horse Live events are an hour long. I know that this is a really popular topic. We received a ton of questions uh, before we got started tonight. We'll be asking the doctors those questions. We'll also be taking questions from our live audience. If you're listening and you have a question or if you want to follow up to an answer one of the doctors has given, you can go ahead and type into your console that question. Our news editor, Erica Larson, is reviewing those and sending those on to me to read to the doctors as we have time tonight. Um, but I want to start with you, Dr. Morrison. We have a question from Ron in Maryland, and Ron wants to know how does hoof balance or imbalance affect a horse's joint health? How are the two related? I think, um, you know, you look at the horse's hoof, it's the, obviously the first part of the horse's body that touches the ground, so, you know, it's designed to absorb, you know, concussion and absorb shock, provide traction, uh, but, you know, the manner and way the foot contacts the ground affects all the structures above it. Um, you know, so if a horse lands, you know, an outside quarter or toe or heel, you know, that'll affect all the structures above it and how they're loaded. Um, I think you can look at the way the foot contacts the ground two ways. You know, we all hear static balance and dynamic balance. Uh, if you just look at a horse standing statically, you know, if you were to raise one side of the foot and make it out of balance, you, you would compress the joints on that high side. And that would have a more profound effect, you know, on the more distal joints, the joints more towards the end of the, the leg or closer to the foot. And as you get further up the limb, you know, foot imbalance or, or raising one side of the foot would probably have less of a compression effect on the joints as you've gone further up. But, but when you do make a foot go out of balance, say you left one side of the foot real high, you know, that, that part of the foot is more likely to contact the ground first. And that affects, uh, you know, that affects how the whole limb hits the ground and how the whole limb is positioned uh, when the horse's leg hits the ground. You know, so you can really make a, f a horse travel wide or, or travel narrow, perhaps, um, by, by, by trimming the foot in different ways. And you can just imagine how that would affect all the, all the structure and, and joints above it. Um, you know, so it affects it you know, statically. You know, just standing there, you would compress joints. If you were to raise one side of the foot and shoot a radiograph, you would see the joint spaces actually close. You can, so you'd have compression, but then also dynamically you'd affect you know, the way that foot contacts the ground, and that would affect all the all the structures above it. So I mean, it plays a huge, huge role in 
and, and joint health. So is hoof balance something that is going to cause acute problems with, with joint health or chronic long-term problems with joint health? Yep, uh, still for me? Yep. Yes. Uh, both, uh, I mean, more, more likely, you know, more subtle imbalances are more likely to cause chronic low, you know, low-grade deterioration of the joint until it becomes a major problem. But also, I mean, I've, I've trimmed, I do lots of foals, and you know, sometimes we purposely trim them out of balance to promote um, you know, growth on the physis and growth plates. So you know, we'll see foals growing crooked, and we'll, we'll trim their foot in a way to make them you know, load the limb a little differently and, and, and cause more compression or, or tension on the growth plates and try to influence the way those growth plates uh, grow. And in doing that, though, I've made many foals joint sore. So you can create an acute joint soreness without doubt by trimming a foot out of balance. But I think more of what we're common what we commonly see is a is a kind of a long term abnormal loading and, and a slow kind of insidious onset of uh, joint disease is a much more common scenario. Okay. So Dr. Conklin, Nicole in Arizona wants to know how do we as horse owners know if our horses' hooves are truly healthy and balanced? What should we be looking for after our horses get either trimmed or get a new set of shoes put on? Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's an, an easy question and a very hard question to answer. I mean, I think we all would love to have uh, you know, a blood test. Uh, you know, much like we check the liver or the kidney to determine is the foot healthy, and, and unfortunately we can't do that. So most of what we do is visibly what do we see and, and how uh, do we interpret what we see as healthy or unhealthy. And if we're just talking about the health foot, I mean, I think we all could recognize what a healthy foot looks like as horse owners, one that is fairly, um, you know, a balanced in the sense of, of uh, being uh, representative of what the horse's skeletal structure is. You know, we want a hoof that uh, doesn't have a lot of rings in it, things like that. Those are simple things that horse owners might see. And your farrier probably recognizes it more than anything when he trims the bottom of the foot. Is there a lot of separation in the in the white line? You know, do we see diseased areas along those uh, connective areas? Do we have a healthy sole structure? Do we have a thick horn, what we call tubular horn, or the wall part that you visibly see. Uh, and so all of those things kind of together would give you some interpretation visibly uh, for determining whether a, a hoof is healthy or not. As far as balance goes, that's a very difficult question to answer, um, you know, uh, blanketly for all horses that are out there, because balance to one horse may not be the same to another, uh, depending on, obviously, what they do, how uh, they're structurally set up, but for me, I mean, when we look at, if you just want to be simple about balance, I want the, the obviously the angle of the shoulder to be very similar to the angle of the pastern and the angle of the hoof wall. So, uh, in its simplest form, that's probably the way I would uh, describe balance in a general sense. Our next question is for Dr. Morrison. Uh, Valerie in Texas wants to know, in relation to the hoof size and shape, where should or how far should the frog extend in length when you look at the foot from from the bottom? Uh, I mean, you, you want a you want a good, nice, strong, healthy-looking frog. I mean, most of the textbooks and traditional. You know, farrier guidelines would be you want a, a frog that's about two-thirds of the length of the uh, solar surface of the hoof. Uh, but I think a lot, you could tell a lot about a foot by looking at the frog, you know, particularly the uh, central sulcus of the frog. Uh, you know, that central sulcus you know, should be like a, like a, a flat, shallow depression, like a teaspoon almost depression. I mean, you see some feet that are contracted, that central sulcus will close up. Uh, and get very contracted, and that could be a, a sign of heel contracture. Uh, you, know, you like a, you know, the, you like the uh, the heels of a horse's hoof looking at the bottom of the foot to be, of the hoof wall area, the heels to be roughly around the widest part of the frog. So you know, we use the frog, you know, as a landmark, and also tell a lot about the health of the foot. But I'd say you know, about two thirds length is is general uh, general guideline. But you know. It's hard to change that. A horse has a 
a frog that he has. I mean, you know, some feet do get stretched out and elongate, and, and frogs can get a little longer. Um, you know, but, but for the most part, I wouldn't advocate trying to you know, trim or, or do anything to change the, you know, the, the length of the frog. Dr. Morrison, can you tell us what the frog does? What is the importance of the frog on on in how the hoof functions? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think the I think the simplest answer of the frog's role is it's basically the you know a soft tissue hinge between the heels. You know, allows the heels mobility, independent movement, allows the foot to expand and contract. You know, it was once thought that the frog's job was to hit the ground and, and pump blood up through the foot, up, up through the digital cushion and up the foot. But there's been studies showing, you know, when a horse's foot contacts the ground, there's actual, actually negative pressures in the digital cushion. So it's probably not direct compression of the frog on the digital cushion that's pushing blood up the leg. It's probably a different mechanism. I think the frog does a... It's supposed to bear some weight as well and, and help support the weight of the horse and the and the heel area as well. It's probably another role of it. But it's a, it's a it's a probably a weight bearing structure to some degree and but mostly a soft tissue hinge. Doctor Conklin, barefoot trimming is a really popular topic for our audience. We get lots of questions, lots of interest about keeping horses barefoot. Um for this event we got uh, probably more than a dozen questions about that specifically. Um, we have questions from Nicole in New Mexico and Mary in Florida. So Nicole wants to know, is barefoot preferred over shoeing for healthy joints and hooves? Do shoes interfere with shock absorption of the hoof? And Mary wants to know, what is your overall take on the barefoot movement? I'm going to start with Dr. Conklin and then Dr. Morrison, I'd like you to jump in and, and share your thoughts as well. So Dr. Conklin, let's start with you. Oh. That's perfect. I was hoping Dr. Morrison would go first. No. I know, I know that's a very popular question you, you always get. Even any time you uh, visit the, visit clients or, or the general public, I mean, you know, I think we have to historically look at why do we shoe horses or why would we even consider putting, putting anything on the foot. And uh, for me, I just break it down into a 40,000-foot view. And to me, we only shoe horses for three reasons, and that's to provide protection, to attenuate or modify traction, or for some type of therapy. And so, uh, you know, when you look at all the things that we do to feet, those are, it really fits into those three categories. So, you know, uh, you know, can a horse go barefoot? Absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it, but, but a lot of it depends on the structure of that horse's foot and uh, what you're asking it to do. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it's discipline dependent. You know, a reining horse that needs uh, reduced traction by adding a slider to the back of the foot obviously won't perform as well as a potentially a barefoot horse. So there are reasons to do that. You know, protection is probably the one that, um, you know, might be argued the most. However, there are some horses whose hoof wall structure uh, over time has evolved to the point where it's, um, you know, it's not as good as uh, potentially it could be. And so we have to add protection. Uh, and so those are different reasons. And the other thing is what we deal with day to day. I mean, there are reasons to shoe a horse uh, for therapy. You know, if we have some significant pathology in that foot and we have to use the foot as a tool, whether that's to modify angles or uh, change, uh, you know, different things, then we have to apply some type of pedal appliance to help that situation out. So, you know, I, I can't say uh, as a blanket statement that all horses should be barefoot, and I can't say with, uh, as a blanket statement that all horses should be shod. I think you have to look at every individual case and determine is the foot structure satisfactory uh, in this situation uh, that we don't need to provide protection, that we don't need to modify traction, or that we don't need any therapy. And from that perspective, that horse could potentially go barefoot. Now, for me, uh, I live in a very arid environment, and it's very different than where I practiced for many, many years. And uh, feet do well barefoot here, very well. Uh, Dr. Morrison, however, uh, is probably going to tell you, you know, in some of his conditions, um, you, you just can't get away with it. The foot is too soft. Uh, the environmental conditions are much more, uh, much more, uh, moisture intense, and so that foot is a lot softer. So 
that's kind of my thought on the barefoot issue whenever you discuss it in general. And, and Dr. Morrison, what are your thoughts on, on the barefoot movement? Um, I think I think that I mean, there's definitely there's merit in getting some horses do better barefoot. There are some foot problems, I think, that do better barefoot. There are definitely, like Britt said, there's uh, lots of situations where you, you need shoes and depend on shoes, um, especially, you know, the hoof adapts to the environment it's in to some degree, and a lot of our show horses aren't in the same environment all the time. They're, they're traveling to different types of arena footings, and, you know, and and just the risk of you know the preparation of a horse for a competition and and different harder footing and, and going sore or a horse that's predisposed to soreness. It's, sometimes it's just safer and more reliable to keep you know to keep some of them shod. Um, but you know, with that being said, I use barefoot in my practice a lot to treat lots of different conditions. I think you know quarter cracks and uh, underrun heels and collapsed heels. Some of those things I can rehabilitate a foot. I feel a lot quicker in many instances by getting the horse barefoot and controlling his footing. If I have that opportunity, I mean, you're, you're, you always have different circumstances you got to deal with as a practitioner. If you can control the footing the horse is on and maybe train the horse on a, a synthetic track or, or or grass or good turf or something, and you know that, those are great ways to manage some problems. But I, I do think I can heal quarter cracks, uh, underrun heels. Uh, crushed heels, even sheared heels or displaced heels. When you see one heel bulb pushed up, a lot of those things, I love to try to get them barefoot if I can. You know, that it, like I said, like Dr. Conklin said, it, it, it depends on each case too. I'm not just because a horse has a sheared heel or a quarter crack, I'm not going to prescribe we go barefoot. I'm going to take a lot of the things into consideration. What's the horse's sole depth? You know, is he, is he really sore over his bars with hoof testers? Can he can he go barefoot, or am I going to cause another problem, a bruise? Um, but it's definitely a tool in the bag that I, I use. And so, Dr. Morrison, I have a quarter horse that I trail ride. I ride him in the mountains, up in the Cascades. We're on lava rock, the volcanic rock, uh, and he does great barefoot. He's 12 years old, has never had a pair of shoes on him. And then I have my dressage horse, my Hanoverian. He is only ever on the nicest footing. Like, that's what he needs is... Yeah beautiful, nice footing, and he, uh, where my quarter horse is very inexpensive to take care of his feet, <laughs> my Hanoverian takes very complicated shoes and requires shoes when the footing is so good. So what is it about horses that makes them have different needs for, for their foot care? Yeah, man. I think part of it's, part of it's probably genetics. A, a lot of it probably is environment. I mean, look at most, you know, racehorses there. Most of them are trained on very good footing. I always joke, you know, you you house them on fluff, you train them on fluff, they're going to turn into fluff. <laughs> I, I, I think to some, some degree the foot's going to be soft when we do that. When we, you know, I think if you slowly transition it onto different, harder, firmer footings, I, I think most feet will adapt. And we see that a lot in Kentucky. We do a lot of thoroughbred racehorses, and a lot of them are, you know, they they run on the racetrack. Uh, they come back to the farm and be broodmares, and they're on a completely different environment now. I mean, they were on, you know, nice deeply bedded stalls, walking out on on, on groomed pathways to a groomed track that was very soft. And you know, so there's a there's, there's definitely an art in and a technique in, in transitioning those horses that were trained on fluff and housed on fluff to to back into the real real world to some degree. You know, that, it's all about building sole depth and slowly adapting the bottom of a foot. And it's amazing to watch these feet change. I mean, you see pictures all over of, of people that do barefoot stuff, and I've seen it for years here. I mean, you slowly see the sole texture change. You see the sole callus develop. Uh, and you start to see the horn tubules change and the overall health of a hoof wall uh, improve uh, as, as they go barefoot. You know, but it's, a lot, it's not just going barefoot. There's a lot of other things, too. I mean, those, those horses are... At the racetrack, they're getting bathed every day with detergents and, or maybe maybe soaps, which probably deteriorate some of the oils and protective layers on the hoof wall. Um, and, you know, they're getting they're 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 training a lot. You know, their exercise routines a lot different on the track than when they go back to the farm. So, so there's a lot of different things that go into it. You know, with that being said, I've also 
rehabilitated many feet on the racetrack while horses were you know on soft footing and and built a, a fairly good healthy foot for them um, yeah so I think you can you can that's the one thing I love about the horse's foot it's so adaptable and it, it, it changes you know for the better or worse it, it's just a very rewarding thing to work on horses feet because you can see these changes and it's just nice to have tools available when you see it changing for the worse how are you going to go back and, and and get a foot healthy again now some of it could be our own industry fault I mean some of it I mean, we can't lie I mean some feet deteriorate there could be for there could be poor you know poor shoeing techniques in some cases you know it could be you know feet are the number one complaint we get from people are, are poor quality hoof walls and tender feet and feet that throw shoes and you know sometimes you know some guys will nail shoes on very shallow and, and very weak nails and you know those will split the hoof wall and make it get a lot of mechanical damage and when you have nice healthy feet and the nails are driven nice and high and a nice balanced shoeing job those feet look really can get really really healthy so there's a lot of a lot of mechanical things that cause hoof wall damage as well you know glue on shoes that aren't put on appropriately or they get a lot of moisture under the glue can deteriorate a hoof wall I think uh, nutrition I mean, over nutrition I, I, I think a lot of horses have too much nutrition. Probably, I mean, I think too many supplements, which get their minerals and vitamins out of balance and can affect hoof wall quality. Um, you look at horses that have, you know, some of the worst environments. Sometimes they have the best quality feet. You know, be caked with manure, and and you look at their wall quality. They may have thrush and other issues, but you look at their external external wall quality, and sometimes their walls are just amazingly strong and healthy and good. And it makes you gotta wonder. If some of these feet just being overmanaged in some way. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Morrison, we have another question from you. This is from Liz in California, and she wants to know what your opinion is on natural balance horseshoes or a natural balance type shoe on a horse. Uh, are they beneficial to a horse's joint health, or what is the benefit of their use? Um, yeah, I mean, this, the best of my knowledge, the natural balance shoe was you know, designed after you know, studies on Mustangs and, and looking at uh, proportions and breakover of uh, wild horses, and then trying to implement those into, you know, showing system um, for our domesticated horses uh, to make the foot more healthy and make the joints more healthy. I think it's a good system for many horses, but I, I don't really think one shoeing system is correct for every horse. I think there are some foot types that do very well, and some diseases that do very well with the natural balance uh, system, and there are some feet that may you may not do quite as well with that. It may need something a little different. So it's really hard to prescribe one shoe for every horse or even every every disease. Um, and for those who aren't, I do think I, I do I do think the idea behind it and the you know it's it's good. It's very good. And it's very effective for many horses. That's for sure. It's nice to have a system where you tell people. You know, it's very hard as a veterinarian to you know prescribe shoeing and and have someone you know follow your instructions. I mean the natural balance shoeing system does provide a nice, you know, fairly easy to follow uh, system that'll fix many horses. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with natural balance, can you describe a little bit what that system is? Yeah, well, uh, the natural balance uh, shoe, I mean there's more to the system, but there's the natural balance shoe available on the market um, has a very uh, broad blunt shape almost almost a square shaped toe uh, that moves the breakover point further back uh, and, and allows the foot to break it eases breakover of the horse's foot uh, eases enrollment it just during that phase of the stride where the heel just comes off the ground it, it, it uh, eases that phase of the stride and that, that's the phase of the stride that you know, probably causes a lot of stress on the navicular region and the coffin joint even the lamina, when you're looking at horses with laminitis, uh, it's that, that breakover phase um, that puts a lot of stress on a lot of structures of the horse's foot. And a lot of, you see, you know, a lot of the diseases we treat, we try to affect that phase of the stride a lot, that breakover phase, because that, that does put stress on so many structures of the horse's foot. Okay. Um, Dr. Conklin, I'm wondering, you know, we talk so much about the horse's front feet. What is important about the care of our horse's hind feet, and how can good hind feet care help with uh, the the joints in in the back of the horse's body, the hocks, the stifle? Um, 
what should our hind yeah, feet look uh, like? Sure. Well, you know, probably 60% of our weight bearing is, or even potentially more, depending on the horse's conformation, is the front limbs. And so we do put a lot of emphasis on there. They're more of a supporting structure. The hind end is more a propulsive um, structure. I mean, the, the whole hind apparatus is used for propulsion to move the horse forward. And so those feet are actually shaped a little bit different. They're, they're probably a little more attenuated to, for, for better traction. They have typically a, more of a point to it, more of a triangular shape to them so that as a horse drives, it uh, almost has like a track athlete spikes or a, a pointed area where they can actually dig into the ground and, and move forward. So anatomically, they're, they're different than the front end uh, when you look at them uh, from the ground surface. Um, as far as, uh, you know, joint health related to the hind end, obviously that's going to be discipline dependent again. Uh, when you think about it, a lot of people want to know, well, you know, how would I, how would I help a horse that has got some hock soreness? What would I do shoeing-wise there, or maybe even you know, a stifle? I've got a horse that has a bad stifle. What will you do to fix that or, or improve it with the foot? And, and again, you know, depending on the discipline that changes, I often think of the problems we deal with in hock joints are often concussive issues and torque issues. Um, so a horse, let's say. Uh, for example, a calf horse or a, or a tie-down horse that runs out there and stops really hard and puts his hind end in the ground. Well, that concussion oftentimes uh, is, is what's causing the pain. And so some of those horses, you know, maybe when we want them to actually slide a little more, to settle into their hocks a little more and not be so abrupt uh, in, their, in their stop so that the concussion is reduced. On the other hand, for example, maybe a cutting horse, uh, um, working, uh, you wouldn't want a lot of extra shoe there um, because the, the, that, that, that horse is more of a gymnast and he's moving over his hind end substantially and he needs to get out of the ground. And so, you know, the more lever arm and the more uh, fetal appliance you put back there, maybe the more difficult it is to get out of the ground, maybe more stuck the foot might be in the ground. And so, uh, you know, you may look at, uh, you know, barefoot in that situation. That might be a good example where we go barefoot, where we don't actually use any type of, of shoe to change that to where they can get out of the ground quicker. So uh, a lot of it, again, depends on the discipline the horse does. And then, again, confirmation as well. You know, a significantly sickle hocked horse where the hock is hyperflexed or its, its angle is, is flexed more than it should be is putting a lot of stress on the front of those hock joints. And so, just like Dr. Morrison was saying, we, we may want to um, improve that breakover phase. Maybe we want to, um, you know, shorten uh, the toe length uh, so that the, the horse can move over that joint quicker because it's naturally extended in that hyperflexion. So, once again, I mean, I hate to say it, you can't make a blanket statement for every horse, but uh, you take each individual case and try to make a, make a plan for all of those horses. We have a question for Dr. Morrison from our live audience. Jane wants to know, how much does a shoe restrict the natural expansion and contraction of a horse's hoof and decrease circulation and lymphatic flow? If a draft horse has chronic progressive uh, lymphedema so that there's already a decrease in circulation, does the weight of the shoe or the placements of the clips matter for that horse? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, clip, yeah, clip, pace, clip placement, I think, does potentially affect hoof expansion. I think, you know, clips that are placed too far back or in the side or in the quarters, I think they do change the shape of the foot over time, especially, you know, they, and clips could be fit different ways. I mean, clips can be you know, burnt into the hoof wall. Uh, they can be, you know, fit to the hoof and then some people will, will hammer them in, and that, I think that acts more like a clamping mechanism on the side of the hoof when you actually hammer the clips onto the wall. Um, you know, when you burn a clip into a horse's foot, you uh, usually do it in the non-weight-bearing position. The horse is, well, you always do it in the non-weight-bearing position. The horse's foot's lifted in the air, and you, and you burn the clips into the hoof wall, and they're kind of set into the wall in a very neutral position, and then the, then the shoe's nailed on. Uh, but, you know, I do have horses that need to go in clips, especially on hind feet. Um, 
And sometimes I will take them in and out of clips of, as I see the hoof changing. So if the hoof starts to get more straighter in the quarters and start to look constricted, sometimes maybe I'll switch them from a, a side clip or a quarter clips to no clips or maybe a toe clip to allow more hoof expansion. Um, it's interesting, the, the lymph and DMO one, I, I, I do think um, I do have many horses that develop a lot of edema in their lower hind limbs in particular. Uh, sometimes those horses have you know, low underrun heels. And I've had lots of success either fitting those horses with heart bars with frog pressure. And it, it seems to help the edema improve or go down. You know, or or get them barefoot if you can safely get them barefoot. Now if you get them barefoot and they're foot sore as a result of going barefoot, that's going to cause more edema. So, you know, I think you need to take each case individually like we like we keep saying. Um, I, th I think just a, a shoe by itself uh, on a horse's foot, a, a regular shoe nailed on, you know, it may affect heel expansion to some degree. I think glue-on shoes could potentially affect heel expansion a lot more than a, than a nail-on shoe, um, especially shoes that are glued on into the heel area, metal shoes that are glued on in the heel area. And with that being said, there's a lot of shoes on the market now, synthetic shoes that are flexible and move that can be glued on that may not uh, affect heel expansion in a negative way so much. Um, I think all those need to be tested. I think you know, logic would say the shoe's flexible and it's glued on. It's going to allow the heels to move and expand. Um, but I, I see shoes, I see feet, uh, I see, I see shoes have many different effects on a horse's foot. It may, it may constrict some up, but it may even make some feet flare out more. You know, if you leave a shoe on for a long period of time and, and the hoof gets overgrown, you'll see feet that get overly flared and overly expanded as well. So, you know, shoes can do both. They can, they can bind one up and constrict one, but they can also, if not, if not done correctly and, and reshod in a timely manner, they can make feet get pretty sloppy too, flared and cracks and dishes. And all those things as well. So um, I'd say it can have both both effects. It can constrict or 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 overly expand a foot. We have a question from our live audience for Dr. Conklin. This is from Haley, and she wants to know: Do hoof supplements such as biotin really help a horse's hoof, and will this aid in the horse's overall joint health? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know that I can adequately answer that question. That might be a good one from Dr. Morrison. I mean, my personal feeling is, is much like he said, there are often times that we maybe um, over-supplement horses. Um, I do think there are situations where we have, uh, you know, maybe poor hoof wall integrity, uh, maybe a shelly kind of foot, uh, one that has a lot of... Uh, uh, brittleness to it, I guess, for lack of a better word. It, it appears to me over time, biotin supplementation, you can visibly see it changing the wall from the coronary band down. I don't know that every horse needs to be on a biotin supplement, though, I guess is the whole point. Uh, I do think it does help certain horses, and it's oftentimes difficult for me personally to determine which one it's going to help and which one it's not. I think Obviously, again, environment is very important. Uh, a horse that has an, an, a, a good nutritional uh, plane uh, generally will fundamentally be good. Um, uh, but I'd like to have Dr. Morrison's opinion on that too. Um, yeah, I think there are some feet. Yeah, there. Are, I think hoof wall, poor quality hoof walls, is kind of such an under served area. I mean, we just say they have poor quality walls. There's many different patterns of poor quality walls. Um, you know, there are superficial cracks. There are, there's crumbling. There's kind of a flaky delamination. Um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's really gone through. I mean, there's some studies on that stuff, but nobody's really gone through and really done hoof wall diagnostics. We can say, yeah, this is a this is a wall deterioration consistent with uh, biotin or deficiency or calcium deficiency or a vitamin deficiency. You know, so I think it's a it's, it's an area that need, definitely needs more work. Um, you know, most of the work done with biotin was done on the liposoners because it was a you know it was, a, it was a herd of horses where they had all 
you know, identical horses, same genetics, same. It was all done in Vienna on a, you know, same management, and, and they did show biotin on those horses increased hoof wall growth rate and uh, wall quality on those on, the, on that particular group of horses. Um, you know, with that being said, we've we've had many horses we put on biotin that we don't don't see much of a change. We don't change anything else, and we've had some horses that seem to respond well to biotin. So I think it's just one of those areas we we treat them all with biotin, and you know, some may have a need for the extra biotin, and some may not. Um, you know, there are other studies uh, from Scotland where they added biotin to a group of horses and improved their wall quality, but then they added uh, I believe limestone or, or a calcium supplement and improve the wall quality even more. And that's where you know, a lot of the work on some of the original uh, hoof supplements came from. Some of that work, you know, adding you know, alfalfa and things that had calcium in it along with biotin, kind of a blanket approach to, to just supply all the things the hoof wall needs for, for nourishment. Um, but you know, I. I think biotin can help. It definitely, I think it does speed up wall growth, and it does help a percentage of horses. But I think there's a lot of a lot we don't know about poor wall quality, and a lot of other factors involved. You know, management, um, shoeing, I think bathing, and, and um, you know, detergents that, that ruin the oils on horses' hoof. You know, anytime I have a horse of poor quality wall, I recommend they paint the wall with a, a pine tar-based supplement or something that's going to uh, repel water. Um, especially horses that are getting bathed every day, like a lot of athletes, they go out and train in the morning and then get bathed off. You know, some get soaked, some don't, or, or some may get iced and, and soaked and ice baths after training. And I think I think having a natural oil layer on that horse's hoof, if they have a natural, most horses should have a natural, healthy periopal, uh, but I think some horses have a poor periopal and poor external layer of that hoof wall that has that waxy layer, and some may need a little extra help in, in some of the topical products that are available. I think there's a lot, a lot we don't know. Some are nutrition, I think some are, some are other factors. I've heard it described like I have fine hair and maybe I could take biotin and that might help me have healthier hair, but I still genetically have fine hair and I'm never going to have thick hair no matter what shampoo or whatever supplement I take. Is that is that a fair analogy between my hair and and a horse like my Hanoverian who has a thin hoof wall? Yeah, I think genetics. Yeah, I think genetics. I would totally, I, I would totally agree too. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think genetics plays a you know plays a part to a point, and you can only improve them so much as their probably genetic capabilities. But you, know, you can. You can definitely improve a lot of poor quality walls using different mechanical aids or management or nutrition. So, but yeah, you're never going to give a, a thoroughbred a nice big thick, um, you know, Morgan foot or something like that, or, or you know, another a foot typical of another breed. So I have a question for Dr. Conklin. It's a follow-up to something that you said earlier. It's from Bridget in our live audience. And she wants to know, when you mentioned the angle of the shoulder being similar to the angle of the hoof and pastern, how similar is acceptable? Is it within 5 to 10 degrees, more or less than that? What are your recommendations? Yeah, I don't have a blanket uh, angle recommendation. You know, a lot of people walk around with hoof gauges that, that uh, you know, they say 53 degrees or whatever it may be um, is suitable or adequate, and I don't do that. I mean, um, you're not going to find that perfect horse where um, every angle is exactly right. I think for me the most important thing is the hoof pastern axis, that the bony column uh, from the ankle down uh, being somewhat aligned, so if we were to take an x-ray and look at the bones inside the foot, uh, the, we, we'd put a ruler on the top of that, what we'd call alignment of the dorsal cortices. I would like all of those to be fairly similar, uh, and oftentimes that will match the angle of the shoulder, not all the time. Uh, obviously, we have lots of variations from that, so I can't really give you a 5-degree or a 10-degree differentiation from that. Every horse is a little bit different. Um, but if I were kind of strictly evaluating uh, the hoof in respect to that, I would want the hoof angle, the dorsal wall, the front of the wall, the top of the wall to be very similar to the rest of the pastern all the way into the fetlock. 
Um, we have a question for uh, Dr. Morrison, and it is from Heidi in our live audience. And she has a horse that is a dressage horse who is slightly pigeon-toed. She wants to know if being pigeon-toed could cause problems for her horse's joints long-term, and if there's anything that can be done shoeing-wise to help avoid future problems. Yeah, um, yeah, what I recommend, you know, I think any time a horse's leg, I mean, it may, it may or may not cause any, there are a lot of good horses that are pigeon-toed that stay sound and for a long period of time. I mean, it, I, I would recommend for a horse that's, any horse that's pigeon-toed or a horse that toes in or toes out, you let them break over wherever they want to. The horse is going to want to break over on his outside toe. So I wouldn't try to make that horse break over like a normal horse. That would put more stress on the joints. Um, I wouldn't trim it any different than, you know, I, I pretty much trim most feet perpendicular to the long axis of the of the pastern, especially on a horse that's pigeon-toed. And there different ways, you know, pigeon-toed could mean, it just means he toes in. That could be either an angular deformity or it could be a rotational deformity. Um, you know, so I wouldn't try to trim that horse's foot to make them stand straighter. I'd let him toe in. I would just, uh, and I'd let him break over where he wants to. I mean, pigeon toe is not necessarily a bad thing. There are very, a lot of very good horses that are that toe in. I mean, and, and some may even argue there might be a mechanical uh, benefit to towing in for mechanical efficiency. I mean, you look at a lot of, some of the best race horses actually will toe in a little bit if you look at them and break down their conformation really closely. Um, you look at a lot of human human sprinters. I mean, look at a lot of, a lot of good athlete human athletes seem to kind of toe in a little bit when they run or or do something. So there might be some mechanical benefit to towing in um, on some horses. Uh, so I don't necessarily see towing in as a as a bad thing. Uh, best of my knowledge, is no real studies uh, showing any negative effects of of towing in on long term uh, soundness. You know, as long as it's within a you know, within a ballpark, you know, there's all degrees of, of towing in too. I mean, is the horse towing so bad that his that his leg wobbles to the outside when he walks? I mean, that might be a little different story than a than a horse that just toes in slightly, but, it, but his limb seems pretty stable when he's walking. Um, so it depends on the degree of it. But I'd say let the horse break over where he wants to, and um, you know, don't try to trim the foot to make it stand straight. Uh, Dr. Conklin, I have a question from our live audience from Jennifer, um, and Jennifer wants to know if there are any classes that she can take to learn how to trim a hoof and balance it properly herself. Before you answer this, I have to say I'm fairly comfortable trimming my horse's hooves, um, and when I do it myself, it makes me really appreciate my farriers because it's really hard. <laughs> It's hard work, um, but Dr. Conklin, if if we horse owners want to know how to do it ourselves and want to be self-sufficient, how can we learn how to trim a hoof? Yeah, I'm, I know there are classes out there. I don't know of any specific location uh, uh, or the curriculum associated with lay folks doing it. I mean, in reality, that's how most farriers got started. Is um, you know, there's obviously schools um, that, that you can go to to learn that. But as far as a short course, a lot of uh, farrier schools will have some short courses. It's generally for um, folks that are looking to progress into the trade a little bit. So they're out there. I mean, you know, you want to kind of stay with some, some folks that, uh, you know, have some credibility to them. Uh, I would look closely at that. I mean, obviously we have an American association, the American Farriers Association, that you know, is, is, is very reputable. There's others as well. Um, so there's a lot of things out there. Probably the best thing to do, though, is to, in all honesty, apprentice or ride with uh, a farrier that does a lot of work. Um, you know, really um, getting close uh, to, to your farrier as far as, uh, you know, having the capabilities of, of spending some days with them. Uh, it's probably the best scenario for somebody trying to learn a little bit about it because they they can really give you the ins and outs and and, uh, and explain to you, especially for your area, what is the best situation. Okay. Um, Dr. Morrison, we have a question from Sharon in New York. And Sharon wants to know if unbalanced hooves can lead to navicular problems. What's your take on that? 
would I would say yes. I'd say uh, you know different types of navicular problems. Um, you know, navicular disease encompasses many different types of lesions we see in a small area. So there could be you know there could be diseases of the navicular bone itself or any of the structures that come in contact with the navicular bone, such as the deep digital flexor tendon or the impar ligament or the uh, suspensory ligaments of the navicular bone. Uh, I, I, I think I see patterns of uh, navicular disease on different foot types. I mean, as you'd imagine, your low heel foot, your broken back hoof pattern axis, and your low heel long toe foot would put more stress on the soft tissue structures of the navicular region. So you, know, you do see more deep digital flexor tendon lesions on that foot type because that, that hoof is not supporting the soft tissue structures uh, as the foot gets lower in the heel, it puts more strain on the deep digital flexor tendon. There's actually some studies showing for, um, you know, as you, as you lower the hoof angle, you put more strain on the deep digital flexor tendon. Um, and, and just imagine a horse with underrun heels traveling in soft footing. Just You can almost imagine how that toe would want to flip up and the heels would want to sink into the ground. And that, that hyperextension of that joint would really strain the deep digital flexor tendon or the impar ligament. Um, but the study's shown that for every every one degree change in the hoof angle, you get a four percent change in the strain on the deep digital flexor tendon. So you know, if you were to decrease a horse's angle by you know six degrees, say in a severe situation, you'd you'd add you know twenty four percent more strain on that deep digital flexor tendon. Um, you know, I, I do think some upright Boxy feet also get navicular disease, and maybe not quite the same types of navicular disease as a low-heeled foot. We see more problems uh, in the bone region. Um, you know, maybe maybe arthritis of the of the border of the navicular bone. And the navicular bone is a very, you know, complicated anatomical structure. It it acts as a gliding surface for the tendon to slide over. It's also one of the borders of the coffin joint as well. You can get arthritic changes to the navicular bone or you can get uh, tendon lesions or or you can get ulcerations or rubs where that tendon slides against the navicular region uh, bone. Uh, but I do think I see more like arthritic and bone type changes in the upright foot. And that makes sense because you look at an upright foot or a, a clubby foot, if you will, and it's almost like a post hitting the ground. There's very little angulation to the joints. So all that strain just goes right out through the bony column. So you see maybe maybe arthritis and navicular, uh, sorry, ring bone or arthritis, and maybe uh, changes to the the articular border of the navicular bone on those foot types, as opposed to a low heeled foot, where you have uh, probably overloading of the soft tissue structures and maybe less loading of the bone column itself. Well, so I do I think hoof balance and and you know, hoof capsule distortions do put strain on different areas. Well, Dr. Morrison, now you have me worried because my my, <laughs> my my horse that has had navicular issues is my my dressage horse. He has the the very the low heels, long toe issue, crushed heels, contracted yeah. heels that we've worked really hard. Um, his foot is much much healthier, but he just kind of chronically tends towards that low heel, um, and he's had the navicular issues. My yeah. Quarter horse has never had any issues. He doesn't work maybe as hard as my dressage horse does, but he has that very boxy foot. Uh, he's barefoot, very upright, very boxy. Um, so what can we do if we have a horse like that to maybe prevent some of those long-term issues with the navicular? Yeah, for your for the low-heeled horse or the, the boxy horse? Yeah. And the boxy one, the low-heeled one I've been working on. <laughs> I, I wasn't worried about the boxy <laughs> one. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think for the boxy foot, I look at to do things to help absorb uh, absorb shock, uh, concussion, and you know problems that are gonna that you see typically on the uh, articular surfaces or the joints. Um, I think uh, you know, and and hoof balance is is key to that. I think uh, you know good medial lateral balance. I think good strong. Your quarter horse probably sounds like he has good feet. He's the one you ride barefoot and he never gets lame. Mm -hmm. I think good, I mean, look at all the shock-absorbing structures of a horse's foot. I mean, the wall and the lamellar interface and the sole all absorb a lot of shock. Um, 
and that, that foot is usually adapted to absorb shock well. I mean, usually they have real strong digital cushion, real strong collateral cartilages, and those are all the shock-absorbing structures of a horse's foot. So they're probably adapted to absorb shock you know, fairly well. A good strong hoof wall, uh, proper moisture content of the hoof wall will help absorb shock as well. So you know, I wouldn't let his wall get too dry or crumbly. Huh. I, I try to keep it properly moisturized. Um, and just keeping good foot mass on them and, and well-balanced. Uh, I think rolling their toe or rocker in the toe. I mean, barefooted horses will do that on their own anyway. I think when you have a horse that's shot, it's would probably need to put that into a lot of shoes, you know, roll the toe and rocker the toe, do things that they would, would do in barefoot condition. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of you know, the natural balance shoe we talked about earlier has that stuff built into it. And lots of other shoes on the market now have, things like that built into it to ease breakover. And that's something farriers can put into any shoe as well. They can roll the shoe with a grinder or they can rocker it. Um, you know, all those things will help. Okay. Uh, Dr. Conklin, our next question is for you, and it came from Ken in Ohio. And Ken has a horse that stumbles a lot. What are some of the causes of stumbling, and what can we do to help these horses out? Sure. <clears throat> Uh, I mean, there's probably a lot of different things that might cause a horse to stumble. Um, the things that I think about, just primarily from the, the background and disciplines that I deal with, uh, you know, I think of horses that potentially have heel pain or palmar foot pain or what we might categorize as navicular, uh, a horse that doesn't want to load his heel structure, and so they tend to stab their toe a little bit. Uh, you know, they don't want to fully engage their heel, and so... They tend to uh, not reach out there as far as they naturally would and, uh, you know, uh, tend to stumble over those toes. So those are the things that I think about. Uh, and then obviously uh, to improve that situation, you're going to look at some of the things we've been talking about, just like Dr. Morrison was talking about in the upright boxy foot. Um, you know, we want to improve potentially, uh, you know, breakover in that situation. If it's a long toe, the same thing. We're potentially going to be trying to improve uh, the breakover phase of that stride. Uh, but those are the things I think about. The most important thing was, does that horse have heel pain, and is he not wanting to load his heel? And secondarily, toe stabbing a little bit and stumbling as a result. Our next question is for Dr. Morrison. Uh, Julia in Minnesota wants to know what current technologies are available to help detect or prevent lameness in real time. Are there any that you're familiar with or that you've used, Dr. Morrison? Um, no, I don't. We don't typically. I mean, we we've done a lot of. You know, we video a lot of horses, and we you know, we do slow motion video, and and that, and that does help. Um, that does help, you know, when you slow down video and watch horses move, it, it does help uh, detect lamenesses a lot easier than in your eye in real time. Um, so we do use that occasionally. I know there are products on the market like the lameness locator and, and things will that will attach, um, you know, accelerometers to the horse or and things like that to, to, to measure dif different movement and of each limb, you know, so you have a computer kind of tell you how how each limb is being loaded and moved. No things are probably a lot more. They're fairly sensitive. And then you know, universities have access to force plates and pressure pressure mats where they can jog horses over and and detect more subtle lamenesses that way. For me, I don't, I don't really have access to a lot of that equipment. To me, we use the rider, their information. I think I think a lot of times you can feel a lameness when you're riding a horse quicker than you can probably see one. Sometimes horses just don't feel right um, before you can actually see an overt lameness. So to me, I go, I go by the the history from the owner and the rider, especially if it's a good, you know, experienced rider knows the horse. That to me um, tells me a lot of information. Uh, Dr. Conklin, we have a question from our live audience. Diane wants to know what is the best treatment and care for a horse with a clubbed foot, and what impact would this issue have on a horse's joints over its lifetime? Yeah, that's a that that question has a lot of different variables there. Uh, you know, are we dealing with a young horse or a mature adult horse? Um, you know, the the clubbed foot. 
visibly is just uh, <clears throat> a foot that has um, more of an upright appearance compared to the other side, maybe a taller heel structure, maybe a longer heel structure, uh, and that angle is obviously a much more uh, uh, acute as far as um, in relation to the ground surface uh, when compared to the other foot. So there's variations in clubs, uh, there's variations in grades, um, you know, as a young, uh, maturing horse, a uh, uh, weanling, yearling, there are things that we do to potentially try to improve that. Um, you know, sometimes those young foals, all they do is wear off the lever arm of their toe uh, running around, and, and they just need extra leverage at the toe to drop their heel as they continue to grow, and they they do well. Uh, obviously, the extreme measures of those are some of those they actually we actually have to cut the soft tissue structure um, in the limb itself to release some of the uh, shortened tensile structure. So a club foot uh, is really secondary to uh, the deep flexor tendon contracting or at least being shorter uh, than, than, uh, than the other limb causing that foot to, to become upright. So again, we may address it through increasing leverage at the toe. You might, you might address it by cutting some tensile structure, whether it's a check ligament or other things like that. And then in the mature horse, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's mostly management. I mean, you're, you're not often going to go cut uh, checks or deeps in the mature horse, but you're often just managing um, the confirmation you're given. And so on those horses, um, we're actually attenuating breakover, much like we've discussed before, uh, to help those situations out. We don't always, I don't always fight a confirmational abnormality in the mature horse. I feel like just like Dr. Morrison had explained before, that we sometimes will cause more problems uh, than we actually um, will remedy when we try to fight a conformational defect in a mature animal. So again, a lot of variables there and depending on the age of the horse itself. Dr. Conklin, we have another question from you. Alta is in Arizona and she wants to know how she can help her horse who has ring bone. What kind of shoeing or trimming options are available or even medical treatments are available to help help her horse with ring bone? Yeah, ring bone's a nemesis for a lot of us. I mean, uh, I wish there were a simple answer. Um, unlike arthritis in the hocks uh, or somewhere like that, the ring bone tends to be progressive and uh, a fairly nasty uh, lesion to try to control as far as soundness is related. There are a lot of things we can do shooting-wise to help support the limb. Uh, they're, they're not often going to be, going to be uh, situations that fully recover those patients. So I, I tend to tell people, look, we're going to modify the shooting a little bit, you know, based on what we're given. If we have a long toe and the horse has ring bone and the, and the the joints uh, of the pastern are beginning to break backwards, then you know we may shorten the toe and we may provide uh, caudal or palmar or heel support to some degree. Uh, we generally want to move uh, any of the, the leverage on the medial or lateral side of the foot to the middle of the foot. We want to reduce uh, you know, as much uh, leverage that's going to be occurring in that foot. Uh, by improving breakover all the way around that thing so that the horse can naturally break over wherever is most comfortable. Uh, so those are things we do shoeing-wise, but as far as medical treatment, uh, in all honesty, I mean, you really break yourself down into, if, it's, if you have visible change radiographically or x-ray-wise, uh, then you're left to actually either treating the joint with some type of, of uh, you know, corticosteroid, uh, which is generally short-lived, um, there are techniques to actually inject alcohol in those to try to help the body naturally fuse that joint. Uh, there's pros and cons to that and success stories and failures as well. And then there are obviously surgical techniques to help some of those um, significant ring bone issues where we actually fuse the joint manually through screws and plates. Um, and so again, uh, you know, the shoeing part of it's pretty minimal. Uh, you're, you're dealing with now moving into medical and likely surgical solutions for some of those horses. Okay. Uh, Dr. Morrison, we have a question for you uh, from ben, uh, Branwyn in the UK. And Branwyn wants to know what comes first, a hoof imbalance or a muscular imbalance? Or is it chicken and the egg? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I feel like I see uh, hoof imbalance 
first, leading to, uh, you know, anytime the foot's in balance or you have foot pain, it alters the horse's posture or maybe just the way he moves and he compensates or he's out of balance and they get secondary uh, back pain or neck pain. Um, so that, that's typically what I see. I see a lot of horses with heel problems in the front be sore with their neck. I see a lot of horses with uh, low heels, underrun heels behind get sore over their gluteal region. Um, the interesting study, um, North Carolina, uh, Dr. Mansman, I believe, where he, he did a study looking at horses with pain over the gluteal region, and he measured their toe length, and um, and then he, you know, he found, you know, it was like 75 or 80 horses that were painful over their gluteal regions, and he, he measured their distance of their their toe length. Uh, I think from the I think from the tip of the coffin bone to the end of their hoof wall, which he called the breakover distance. And then he, a lot of the horses that were pain over their back had a had a larger toe length, and so they had more, uh, probably a lower hoof wall angle. And then he went back and you know trimmed and shod those horses to decrease that toe lever, and a lot of them, a statistically significant number of those horses, uh, their, their gluteal pain either improved or resolved just from changing the foot balance or the shoeing. So but that tells me, right, that gives some evidence to the fact that maybe you know, hoof imbalance is probably the primary cause of, of gluteal pain in that population of horses that he looked at, for sure. But I, I see the same thing in our practice as well. And you know, I, I see a lot of horses that are sore on the front end, and a lot of times we'll look at their hind feet. And if a horse is sore on his hind end, he's going to shift his weight to the front end and, and overload his front end. and, and start having problems up front and sometimes the front end lameness is a lot easier to see so that's usually gets noticed first when it you know could be coming from poor balance behind so I think it's real important to look at the balance of hind feet as well um, you know really looking at the whole horse you know we, we can sometimes get tunnel vision on the front feet um, I think that's a good question but in my opinion I think uh, I think hoof and balance comes first and then you get the muscle compensatory changes later okay well our hour is already up um, I want to ask before we uh, leave everyone tonight, for each of you to share the, the one takeaway that you really want people to have from tonight's discussion and offer them advice on how to help keep their horses' feet balanced and their joints healthy uh, and how those are interconnected. Uh, do you want to start, Dr. Conklin? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think my takeaway is... Uh, um, you know, there's a lot of different factors in every situation, and 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 getting with your veterinarian and and your farrier and trying to determine, uh, you know, based on your circumstances, based on what you do with your horse, what fundamental things can we do to help the situation if there actually is a problem? Uh, I think it's very important to do that. I think it's important for people to realize that there's no blanket statement. Um, you know, whether it's a certain uh, pedal appliance, whether it's a system, whether it's a, a theory, whatever it may be, there's no uh, blanket statement we can make for every horse. Every situation is different. And, uh, you know, I think it's important for everybody to recognize that the situation uh, in Texas may be different than it is in Kentucky. It may be different than it is in California. Uh, and, and there's a lot of those factors that are involved uh, when you look at each individual horse. And Dr. Morrison? Well, that was pretty good. I agree. <laughs> but, yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, there's really, it's an individual approach. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into each each disease. A lot of times, you know, it's not just shoeing. It's a lot of things. It's management. Um, I would look at the whole big picture. Um, you know, just, you know, for the instance of, you know, ring bone horses. I mean, a lot of different. You know, the, the footing can play a role. You know, how the people, how, how the horse is ridden, how he's warmed up, plays a big role. Um, and you know, I think having a having a good farrier and a, and a good relationship with the, the farrier and the veterinarian, and uh, you know, discussing the problems. You know, sometimes before I shoe a horse, I have to, you know, talk to everybody, and and sometimes you know, for quite a while before we all decide what's best for the horse and how we're going to we're going to proceed. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with Britt. I think uh, just a multimodal approach to treating a lot of these problems, and uh, not one thing fixes all of them. That's for sure. They're complicated problems. That's why we're that's why we're talking about them tonight. Okay. 
Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us uh, this evening and answering everyone's questions. I want to also thank everyone who listened live and to everyone who sent in questions for, for us to answer. And to thank our sponsor, um, Behringer Ingelheim Vetmedica. Uh, everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Morrison and, and Dr. Conklin, definitely thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And finally, if you're listening and you're looking for more information on hoof care and healthy joints, we invite you to visit thehorse.com. We have lots of great resources on there for you. And for everyone here at The Horse, thank you for joining us, and we hope you join us next time.